the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes. Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. Air Force General Charles Q. Brown Jr. was uh, confirmed as the first uh, black chief of staff for the Air Force, uh, making him uh, you know, the, the, the first black to lead a major branch of the military. Uh, Colin Powell was uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, but he didn't run a military service. Uh, by contrast, General Brown made his way through the ranks the hard way. F-16 pilot flying some 3,000 hours. Held various Air Force commands in Asia and the Middle East. Recently led the U.S. Pacific Air Forces, which uh, provided insight into the rise of China's military. And he posted a five-minute video that was made for those under his command in the wake of the George Floyd killing with um, his perspective on the two worlds in which he's lived as a black American and as a black American in the military and a military officer. It's interesting. Here's what General Brown had to say. As the commander of Pacific Air Forces, a senior leader in our Air Force, and an African-American, many of you may be wondering what I'm thinking about, the current events surrounding the tragic death of George Floyd. Here's what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about how full I am with emotion, not just for George Floyd, but the many African-Americans that have suffered the same fate as George Floyd. I'm thinking about protests in my country, tis the sweet land of liberty, the equality expressed in our Declaration of Independence and the Constitution that I've sworn my adult life to support and defend. And thinking about a history of, of racial issues and my own experiences that didn't always sing of liberty and equality. I'm thinking about living in two worlds, each with their own perspective and views. I'm thinking about my sister and I being the only African-Americans in our entire elementary school and trying to fit in. I'm thinking about then going to a high school where roughly half the students were African-American and trying to fit in. I'm thinking about my Air Force career, where I was often the only African-American in my squadron, or as a senior officer, the only African-American in the room. I'm thinking about wearing the same flight suit with the same wings on my chest as my peers, and then being questioned by another military member, are you a pilot? I'm thinking about how I sometimes felt my comments were perceived to represent the African-American perspective, when it's just my perspective informed by being African-American. I'm thinking about some of the insensitive comments made without awareness by others. I'm thinking about being a captain at the Oak Club with my squadron and being told by other African-Americans that I wasn't black enough since I was spending more time with my squadron than with them. I'm thinking about my mentors and how I, rarely I had a mentor that looked like me. I'm thinking about the sound advice that has led to my success. And even so, most of my mentors could not relate to my experience as an African-American. I'm thinking about the pressure I felt to perform error-free, especially for supervisors I perceived had expected less from me as an African-American. I think about having to represent by working twice as hard 
to prove their expectations and perceptions of African Americans were invalid. I'm thinking about the airmen that have lived through similar experiences and feelings as mine, or who were either consciously or unconsciously unfairly treated. Conversely, I'm thinking about the airmen who don't have a life similar to mine and don't have to navigate through two worlds. I'm thinking about how these airmen view racism, whether they don't see it as a problem since it doesn't happen to them, or whether they're empathetic. I'm thinking about our two sons. Now we had to prepare them to live in two worlds. I'm thinking about the frank and emotional conversations my wife and I have had with them just this past week as we discussed the situations that have led to the protests around our country. Finally, I'm thinking about my historic nomination to be the first African-American to serve as the Air Force Chief of Staff. I'm thinking about the African-Americans that went before me to make this opportunity possible. I'm thinking about the immense expectations that come with this historic nomination, particularly through the lens of current events plaguing our nation. I'm thinking about how I may have fallen short in my career. And how he can do better uh, going forward, particularly in his new post. Uh, that's a lot of thinking that General Brown is doing. I wish more people would do as much thinking. But the two worlds frame for his comments is really interesting. And I think if you had more honesty along the lines of what General Brown offered, you could get from two worlds to one world. We don't have to be the same. We just have to be treated the same under the law. Uh, that's that distinction seems to be lost in these conversations. And by the way, um, mentored by people that didn't understand his experience, basically saying they were white all through his career to his historic perch. Now, I thought that I tried to fit in in a grade school where I was me and my sister were the only two black kids. And then I tried to fit in in a high school where half of the kids were black kids. But, you know, because I was a different kind of kid. And so it wasn't so much white and black. It was about me, Charles Brown. Very interesting. And uh, those who went before him, I, I want to reference back to this op-ed we mentioned when it was published last year, right before we celebrated our nation's birthday on July 4th, by Harry Stewart, who was a former Tuskegee Airman, who was uh, his birthday also July 4th, love the symmetry, uh, turning 95, he turned 95 years old last July 4th, and he wrote this op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, he uh, received a distinguished flying cross, World War II veteran. And he wrote, I was thankful that my country had given me the opportunity to fly and fight. And all these years later, I am proud I contributed to the cause. We called it winning the double V, victory against totalitarianism abroad and institutional racism at home. July 4th is my birthday, but I celebrate my country's birthday, too. America was not perfect in the 1940s, and it's not perfect today, yet I fought for it then and would do so again. So you can take the perspective of uh, retired Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Harry Stewart and um, General Brown, thoughtful perspective, contextual perspective, like where America has come, that America 2020 is a different place than America 1963, than, uh, than America 1945 when Harry Stewart was flying fighters for this country. Or you can take the hysterical position of the race hustlers and the race hustling politicians and the mindless, guilt-ridden leftist whites. So your choice, which do you think is the more reasoned, textured, thoughtful, adult 
position. For more on all of this, pleased to be joined by another thoughtful gentleman. He is Dean Angelo Sr. He's a retired Chicago Police Department officer and former president of Chicago FOP, regular guest on this program. Dean, thanks for being with us again. Appreciate it. So you've spent uh, 35 years, if I recall correctly, on the force and then served as FOP president. And that uh, you have uh, a Chicago Police Department, about half the police officers, last I looked, are black or Latino. So it's a diverse police force. You representing the rank and file officers and for a time as FOP president, you interacting with rank and file officers as an officer yourself. Your perspective on on race and policing. Well, you know, there is so much involved in in, in a question like that that you have to examine. You have to consider that there are people that walk into an academy that never sat next to someone of, of color their entire life as they grew up in all white suburbia or, or elementary schools. We, you know, we heard about the uh, um, the letter you just read, you know, being the only African-American, African-American in, in, in a class or in a school. So when you bring people into the academy, this could be the first interaction with, with diverse populations. And now you want to school them on acceptance and recognitions and in and, and all of the day-to-day life uh, changes and and um, interactions that these individuals have have had over the course of their lives, and you hear those issues and complaints and and uh, stresses for the first time, you never even realizing they existed. So now people are becoming more and more aware of how other populations have been treated or are still being treated, you know, in communities of color by the people that are assigned to protect them. So it's a huge learning curve. And in six months, you're getting pushed out to do this job and to walk on water, more or less, in in uh, in, in this field because everything is being armchair quarterbacked. It's a, uh, it, it's a tough go. And, and, and people expect you, once you put that uniform on, no one knows you're brand new. Yeah, I call it on your first pair of boots, but you know you're expected to do the job and perform in a way that an officer representing that city is is been hired to do. When we come back with former Chicago FOP President Dean Angelo Sr., I want to uh, explore the question of whether de facto segregation in a community breeds de facto segregation among the police department. That's just the way it is Some things will never change That's just the way it is Listen to podcast of the show at danprofshow.com We're back with former Chicago FOP president Dean Angelo Sr. And I want to pick up something you said, uh, Dean, regarding new officers and the training and uh, how much sharing of perspectives goes on to sort of enhance an understanding across some of these racial issues that have a tendency to be divisive. Is there perspective sharing that goes on to help inform 
everybody's perspective, including black and Latino officers. I mean, this is, you know, it should be a two way or multi dimensional conversation. It should be. And there used to be a program because I, you know, have another career as an academic. I was a tenured professor that I left that position to come in and, and try to serve FOP. I've been in higher ed for well over 20, 23 years, 25 years almost now as an adjunct and as a full timer. But we had a class at the academy when I taught and it was called cultural diversity. Everyone was assigned a different ethnicity to bring in different types of meals that you have, which was a good part. People would bring in homemade cooking, but it was also part of how you grew up. What are your celebrations? What's your home life? that people may not be aware of. And it was really informative. Everyone in the room enjoyed it. Everyone was looking forward to those presentation days where people could share. And I thought it was a great class. And several years ago, it was removed from the curriculum. It makes no sense. If you want people to experience other people's cultures and, and realize about diversity firsthand, you would think that would be a good idea to maintain that type of a course in the curriculum. And it's been gone for years. So, you know, I think it's important that people do share. You'll, everyone that's gone through a police academy will notice or will speak to noticing how like backgrounds, like ethnicities tend to gravitate towards, towards each other. The guys and the girls will come in together, you know, they'll drive each other because they live close nearby to each other, breakfast together, they'll have lunch together, they'll have parties together. As a collective group, generally feeling more comfortable with individuals that look like them, that grew up like them. So even within the department, you have those separations based on ethnicity and based on, you know, how you feel more comfortable or who you feel more comfortable. Some of what's happening at the municipal level is with respect to particular uh, submission holds, uh, not to go full WWF on you, but, you know, the different types of uh, of, of approaches you use to, uh, to, uh, to, to get control and, dis- and detain a suspect who's resisting and so forth. What about the complaint that you hear from police officers a lot, that they're asked to play all these roles where all these different hats be psychologist, social worker, law enforcement officer, et cetera. What about um, rather than defunding or dismantling, unbundling police using unarmed administrative agents and in an agency for things like traffic stops where a lot of police interactions occur when it comes to speeding tickets or some sort of traffic violation? Why not move that away from, for example, in Chicago, the Chicago Police Department and let them focus on the major crimes, not speeding or lane change violations and that sort of thing. Not that CPD does a lot of that to begin with, but I mean, that's still the main interaction with police and civilians. So what about the idea of unbundling some of the things police are asked to do, like, for example, that? Most people, that's their first issue with law enforcement is a traffic stop. That's their their one and their only interaction for a lot of people in this country. And it's usually frustrating. It's usually scary. And I would love to see someone with an MS, master's, uh, you know, social work, get out there and walk up on a car in some of our neighborhoods, in any neighborhood, and try to conduct a safe approach to a vehicle. Because besides domestics, traffic stops can go 
completely upside down mm-hmm. in the manner of a heartbeat. And you are on guard until you get to that vehicle. You don't know who that person is, where they came from, what they did. If they're on a warrant, if they've just committed a crime, if they have weapons or narcotics or right. something in but, the vehicle. But the argument, Dean, the argument, Dean, is that you, knowing it's not a police officer, knowing that it's not a person who's armed, uh, it would be more like an inspection of a restaurant or or something like that by an administrative agency that doesn't have police power uh, agent that doesn't have police powers that is unarmed. So it would de-escalate those types of situations. And, you know, you're just writing a citation. And if the person takes off, the person takes off. It's just like ripping up a parking ticket. Uh, you can rip it up. It doesn't mean you're not going to get it in the mail and it's not going to go on against your plate. Right. Right, but then you're going to wind up with a lot of people hurt, too, that are approaching those cars that don't have the ability to either defend, protect, or recognize that threat. Fair point. Um, and, and this is when you taste that work. This is when you experience that increased heart rate, and you have to remain focused, even though you're experiencing a sense of tunnel vision, and it doesn't stop until you break that relationship with that individual again in a matter of heartbeats, hey, and Dean, then your your guard is out. Joe Biden sat for an interview by Nora O'Donnell, CBS News, for their on uh, one of their upcoming uh, melodramatic specials on race in America that will be hosted by Oprah's BFF. Uh, and uh, Biden was asked about the defund police movement: Should we uh, defund and dismantle police departments? Should we eliminate federal funding for police departments? You've seen the Black Lives Matter painted on that street just outside the White House. Some demonstrators added, equals defund the police. Do you support defunding the police? No, I don't support defunding the police. I support conditioning federal aid to police based on whether or not they meet certain basic standards of decency and honorableness and, in fact, are able to demonstrate they can protect the community and everybody in the community. He's sort of middling the issue, isn't he? I know. Of course not, except uh, they have to act honorably. Well, that sort of starts from the premise that they're not acting honorably. Your reaction to what Joe Biden said about you know federal support for state and local police just predicated on them being honorable and proving that they can serve the communities, protect and serve the communities they're charged with uh, protecting and serving? Well, I think a lot of people in politics are going to have to start doing a little bit of a moonwalk because the rhetoric over the last several years has has more or less fueled what we're seeing right now because they vilified the police. I mean, you look at what we experienced in the city of Chicago. The city council was adamant and going to tear up our contract after they read it, because remember, some of them never read it, uh, even though they voted on approving five of them over the course of their time down there. Vote on it to see what's in it, yeah. Yeah, it's like signing um, a document without reading it and then complaining about it. But, you know, this is a situation that a lot of them have contributed to over the last few years. And now this movement has more or less crossed that line that they drew in the sand. And they're at that, oh, my God, what do we do point, I think. There's a lot that is um, attached to this defunding. You know, you're looking at training, you're looking at vehicles, you're looking at equipment. Now they're going to have to say, well, wait a minute, we have to support the police and fund the police. And it's contrary to what they've been spewing for the last few years. And I think it's getting a little bit out of their control. And they're realizing that um, they're not very comfortable with the direction that this new wave is taking them. 
Dean, let's hold it right there. When we come back, I want to talk about uh, the prospect that uh, police unions could be more proactive when it comes to excising cops who uh, commit wrongdoing from police departments. More with Dean Angelo Sr. coming up. Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. We're back with Dean Angelo Sr., former Chicago FOP president. And uh, Dean, I want to get your perspective on collective bargaining agreements. And before they're inked, if uh, FOP and other police union representatives should... In, in the wake of uh, what's happened, be more proactive in looking for ways to memorialize policies and procedures in contracts that would make it easier to excise bad cops, cops who commit wrongdoing, criminal acts in particular, but perhaps also repeated uh, instances of professional misconduct, make it easier to remove them from the police departments. Well, I think the more controversial thing that agencies or municipalities will not consider, which I think might be interesting to unions, is the hiring process and the background checks and and where you're getting these individuals from. Because when officers walk into the academy, you've got 250 people walking in the Chicago Police Academy that no one in the union has ever talked to, has ever screened, has ever evaluated or even looked at their interview as far as their evaluation process. And then you stamp them approved and you give them to the union. Now the union has to deal with your hire. You screened him. And now you're telling me, well, we've got this guy. He's a bad apple. But wait a minute, you hired him. And now we have to, with our language of the collective bargaining agreement, protect that guy and that girl's livelihood and employment. Oh, that's interesting. I yeah, think that's the a biggest, good point. when you become a plumber, you go to the school on right next to FOP, and they train you, they intern you, and they stamp you whether you're going to be a certified plumber or they kick you out because you can't cut it. When in law enforcement, you're not involved in that process. You're getting the finished product, and you don't even know if that product is you know meets the minimal qualifications. You know, Is this a person that you wanted to work with or you would want to work with? I, I want to go back to um, to defunding. Melina Abdullah, who's a co-founder of Black Lives Matter in L.A., we're in the midst of a health pandemic with an economic fallout. Why would you be spending more on police? This is the argument just for, you know, Garcetti and de Blasio, maybe Lightfoot, uh, certainly the uh, crew in Minneapolis to defund, reimagine the police. And it turns out <laughs> that um, state and local spend on police as a percentage of total spend, has remained constant over the last 40 years at about 4% of state and local direct general expenditures. Really interesting. Uh, If you look at spending, and people have looked at this, imagine that. So it's readily uh, findable. I found it. Correction spending and police spending has been basically flat as, again, inflation adjusted as a percentage of overall state and local spending on everything over the last 40 years, while other spending has gone up at about a 35 degree angle. 
And one of the things that the left normally says is that if you cut spending with respect to any government agency, it becomes less effective and less able to provide its core services. But somehow, and I'm not necessarily an opponent of cutting spending everywhere that there is public spending, but I'm just using their logic and trying to follow here. You, you cut spending in any government agency and you have jeopardized the public. You're killing people. Children will die and so on and so forth. You cut spending with respect to police and the left argument turns to, yeah, yeah, we have to cut spending there. So that agency necessarily becomes less effective because that's the argument you make with respect to every other government agency. So maybe it's time to put that logic to the test for the left. If you look at how the equipment fails or the equipment isn't available, whether it's a vehicle, a computer, a body camera, the microphones in the car, when we went through a lot of those issues, we found that there was an upwards of 60% or 70% of those vehicles and the sound systems weren't working properly. When you have the body cameras and you want to issue them because you want to know everything that a police officer does from the time they take out their radio until the time they drop it off. That's expensive. And that technology, I think, is generating some of the increases in costs along. Well, and, um, and, 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 by the, and by the way, with respect to that police spend, it's only capital expenditures has only been about five percent of the spend. I mean, the most the overwhelming majority of the spend is all salaries and benefits, which you expect. That's what it is with personnel in any enterprise. Mm-hmm. But it's just, you know, it's a small percentage of the overall spend is the capital equipment that's otherwise being mandated by legislators and and executives. So they decry, again, another area where they decry unfunded mandates, except when it's an unfunded mandate they want to impose on an agency they don't like. And then we just found the money uh, to support it as well. There's always that fund that they can find to take care of the issues that are important for them. The funding, the police, you mentioned Minnesota. I, I know that the university up there just cut ties with the police. And now you're just going to have the campus police without the support or uh, input from the local police agency. He is Dean Angelo Sr., retired Chicago police officer and former president of Chicago FOP. Dean, thanks for joining us. Appreciate uh, all of your insights. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Have a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show and uh, following on our conversation with uh, former Chicago FOP President Dean Angelo. I wanted to pick up on uh, the uh, George Floyd case specifically because his brother, Philonese Floyd, testified before House Judiciary Committee on the topic of police reform today. Here was, uh, in pertinent part, some of what George Floyd's brother had to say. Enough is enough. The people marching in the streets are telling you enough is enough. By the leaders that in our country, the world needs the right thing. The people elected you to speak for them to make positive change, George's name means something. You have the opportunity here today to make your names mean something too. If his death ends up changing the world for the better, and I think it will, then he died as he lived. And uh, Floyd, uh, Philonese Floyd also went on to talk a little bit more about uh, his brother. He gave the little that he had to help others 
He was our gentle giant. I was reminded of that when I watched the video of his murder. He called all the officers, sir. He was mild-mannered. He didn't fight back. He listened to all the officers. The man who took his life, who suffocated him for eight minutes and 46 seconds, he still called him sir as he begged for his life. Look, there's no defense for what Derek Chauvin did to George Floyd and the more evidence that comes out and is made public, the various uh, angles and videos that show different angles seems to support the state's case against uh, Derek Chauvin and uh, to some extent the other officers as well. But um, this idea, as Nancy Pelosi said, that uh, George Floyd is a martyr, that um, he changed the world. This is not a, a desire to speak ill of the dead, but I mean, I just can't go along with this revisionist history either. Um, He may have been a gentle giant uh, at times. He also was someone who broke into a woman's home and pointed a gun at her while he was looking for drugs and money. That sent him away for a five-year stretch in Texas after he was released from prison in Texas. That's when he moved up to Minnesota. And, you know, I mean, he had a criminal history, and that doesn't mean that uh, he can't redeem himself. That doesn't mean that he can't get uh, get right in terms of uh, based on what we understand. Perhaps he had a drug problem. There's drug abuse, theft, criminal trespassing, the aggravated robbery that sent him to prison in his uh, criminal background. But um, he's a martyr. He's a hero. He changed the world as someone who, like, purposely does something to change the world, purposely stands for righteousness changes the world. I mean, is that really consistent with the facts as we understand them in the George Floyd case? I want to focus on something we didn't get to, Dean Angelo, but I just had to address the testimony because we have this revisionist history and this the sentimentality that is supposed to be more important than the truth. And it's just not more important than the truth. Uh, you can um, You can have an understanding of the complicated picture of George Floyd's complicated life. I don't think that's unreasonable. Uh, But uh, the issue of chokeholds, this is going to become a bigger issue even than it is already. Uh, Obviously, the the circumstances of George Floyd's death. Well, you've got another case, uh, this out of New Mexico, and this involving, again, a chokehold that resulted in the, uh, the death of a uh, suspect, Antonio uh, Valenzuela, who uh, fled police on a traffic stop. Uh, he was uh, had parole and uh, or, uh, probation and parole violations that uh, came up when they ran his identification, ostensibly. And he was, uh, and police officers gave chase, and a police officer named Christopher Smelser chased him down, tased him, that then stopped him, used a chokehold, and um, ultimately... That uh, that killed him. Uh, that along with methamphetamines in Antonio Valencia, Valenzuela's system. But uh, here's the uh, body cam video that has been released uh, since Officer Smeltzer was charged with manslaughter in New Mexico on Friday. What's your name? Man? In the back of the blue pickup truck, Antonio Valenzuela. He had a warrant for probation and parole violation. Then he ran. Police video shows officers using tasers at least twice to try and stop him, but it didn't work. Give us your hands. Give us your hands. The struggle on the ground lasts for more than four minutes. I'm going to 
can choke you out, bro. You can hear Valenzuela gasping for air. He later died on scene. Man, a good little fight. That was gonna be a quick fight, bro. <laughs> that was a good little fight. Yeah, that's right, real quick. That's not my idea. No, I know. We realized it after, but we realized it. Because of where he kept reaching. Hey, this guy went out. They're doing CPR on him right now. Holy crap! So I don't. Yeah, I don't know what what happened, but. Why do you have to check? Because he's like, he wasn't coming out. You can hear him kind of snoring. Can you check him again? Check his pulse. Because I can't find it, and he's like. We did. Or had to do. We had to. No, I mean I agree, but still. I don't want anything like that to happen. Didn't want anything like that to happen, but it happened. Um, obviously, his excited utterance, I'm going to choke you out, un- unhelpful. Again, uh, manslaughter, involuntary manslaughter charges filed against uh, Officer Christopher Smeltzer, Las Cruces Police Department. Uh, the police department has now moved to terminate him in the wake of the charges that were filed on Friday. The body camera footage, even though this was a February 29th incident, was just obtained Sunday, and you heard uh, the audio version of the body cam footage. And the audio, frankly, is just as good as the body cam because it happened at night and it was difficult to see. So the audio was really important here. And uh, so the issue of chokeholds, by the way, Las Cruces, a police chief announcing he's banning chokeholds. A lot of police departments really throughout the world are banning chokeholds in the wake of Eric Garner back uh, six years ago in New York, George Floyd. Now you have another one, Antonio Valenzuela. All right, when we come back to close out the hour, I want to just develop a little bit more of an understanding of uh, chokeholds that police use, the basis for them, uh, reference uh, somebody who instructs on them in order to um, sort of provide the context that's necessary to, uh, to, I think, drive an understanding and an appreciation of the debate of whether or not they should be uh, legal uh, or not, or whether they should be department policy or prohibited uh, uh, with respect to policing. So we'll we'll uh, pick that up right at the end. This is the Dan Proft Show. We're back. Before the break, I was getting to uh, the banning of chokeholds that's happening in police departments really around the world in the context of uh, use of lethal force. And that's the important context. So for a bit more understanding on the use of chokeholds from a police perspective, there's a good piece that I'll tweet out at Dan Prof Show from Dr. Michael Schlosser, who's the director of the University of Illinois Police Training Institute. And he goes through the many chokeholds, many of which are under review if they haven't already been banned. Terms for both martial arts and police practice include rear naked choke, wind choke, air choke, tracheal choke, true choke, push choke, choke hold, vascular neck restraint, lateral vascular neck restraint, blood choke, bilateral carotid compression, stranglehold, and sleeper hold. And not in the Greg Gagne sense of the sleeper hold. This is serious business. And the important point that I took away is the idea that the chokeholds, to the extent they should be, some of them should continue to be used as, as legitimate uh, police restraints, that it is a, um, can only be used legitimately in 
fear of your life circumstances. In other words, the chokehold should be seen as lethal force the same way that firing your weapon is lethal force. It needs to be proportional to the threat. So you have to have a reasonable fear for your physical safety, for your life, before you're legitimately able to use lethal force. That's the standard, the reasonable person standard, reasonable fear for your life when it comes to the use of lethal force for civilians. It should be, it is really the same for police officers with respect to their firearm. Uh, and he says, Michael Schlosser, same thing should be the case for chokeholds, which makes some sense. And then you have this a broader debate about their employment. And it, to the extent that that is an appropriate standard, it seems to be to me as a non-criminologist, non-expert, but just uh, rationally based on how lethal these chokeholds can be, that uh, in the case of the New Mexico police officer, again, he was not armed, the uh, suspect. He made no threatening action toward the officer. He just ran and then he was tased and he's trying to get away from being tased. And so he continues to run and struggle. But it was not something I think you can fairly characterize as a life and death situation. And so that was an excessive use of force, thus the involuntary manslaughter charges. Now, this is, um, from all observations, a white police officer and uh, a Latino gentleman. I don't know what kind of play this is going to get. I suspect it will get some play because of the chokehold and this debate going on. But it seems to me the debate should focus on police procedures and reforms within police departments and also a recognition that, oh, by the way, police are policing their own in this case, the the body cam footage. And now what we have in terms of assessing the evidence, this police officer, again, brought to justice. He is facing involuntary manslaughter charges. Those are not inconsequential charges, felony charges, uh, charges that carry significant prison time upon conviction. Uh, so we'll uh, wait and see if this fans the flames or if people um, are more level-headed and thoughtful about uh, the discussions that could lead to better policing rather than uh, running around like chickens without necks, uh, talking about uh, you know replacing police departments with social workers and other such silliness. This is Dan Prof. the fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Follow us at danprofshow.com for podcasts of the program and uh, on social media at Dan Prof Show as well, Facebook and Twitter. Mike O'Meara is the head of the Police Benevolent Association for New York State. Uh, he and fellow officers rallied yesterday in New York against uh, politicians, both at the city and state level, as well as activist groups that they believe are vilifying the police unfairly. Here's what uh, Michael Mira had to say. 375 million interactions with the public every year. Overwhelmingly positive responses. But I read in the papers all week, we all read in the papers, that in the black community, mothers are worried about their children getting home from school without being killed by a cop. What world are we living in? That doesn't happen. It does not happen. I am not Derek Chavon. They are not him. He killed someone. We didn't. We are restrained. And you know what? I'm saying this to all the cops here. 
Because you know what? Everybody's trying to shame us. The legislators, the press, into being embarrassed about our profession. This isn't stained by someone in Minneapolis. It's still got a shine on it. And so did theirs. Stop treating us like animals and thugs and start treating us with some respect. That's what we're here today to say. We've been left out of the conversation. We've been vilified. It's disgusting. Trying to make us embarrassed of our profession. We roundly reject what he did as disgusting. It's disgusting. It's not what we do. It's not what police officers do. Our legislators abandoned us. The press is vilifying us. Well, you know what, guys? I'm proud to be a cop. And I'm going to continue to be proud to be a cop until the day I retire. And that's all I have to say. All right. And um, that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, you can't have a discussion about uh, police reforms, uh, as well as uh, the role the union plays as uh, public sector unions play somewhat generally uh, with respect to uh, their members and uh, and government employees. For more on that, in a private sector perspective, and we welcome those too, it shouldn't just be policymakers, it should be those who uh, provide consent to the policymakers, meaning private citizens. Pleased to be joined by Saqib Qureshi. He is the CEO of Building Capital, a Toronto real estate firm. He's the author of The Broken Contract, Making Our Democracies Efficient, Representative, and Accountable. And he had an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal I uh, referenced briefly the other day, arguing for busting the police unions uh, as uh, one reform that should be discussed and, in his view, advanced. Uh, Mr. Qureshi, thanks for joining us. Please uh, appreciate it. Thank you very much, Dan. Pleased to be here. So, um, you know, make your case uh, for uh, for busting up the the police union. And I I I asked the question as sort of a predicate: if you favor busting up the police union, then I assume you would have the same perspective with respect to firefighters, members of SCIU, members of AFSCME, all public sector unions, all public sector unions. And Dan, the first point I'd like to make really is with respect to the uh, speech that was given by the police officer just moments before, because I couldn't help but thinking that, you know what, we have this slightly. Um, the U.S. police shoot more people dead than, you know, Germany, Australia, Sweden, New Zealand, the U.K., and this is per capita, so it's like 30, 31 million, sorry, 30 to 31 people per 10 million uh, population are shot dead by the U.S. police, whereas in Australia it's eight, in the U.K. it's you know it's sort of one or two, New Zealand one or two. So uh, okay, and and just so I'm clear, so you, you're against public sector unionization across the board, just so we're clear. Um, I'm well, I'm definitely against forced unionization. Well, okay, forced union, yeah, sure, right, right to organize, okay, but but you're you you're against closed shops, whether it's police or fire or teachers or government workers? Um, broadly speaking, yes. Okay. Um, so I just want to uh, go, go back to the, the, the comparison you made about police-involved shootings in America versus uh, other countries. Y- you can't look at that without also considering the incidence of violent crime in America with respect to other countries. And, of course, we have significantly more violent crime than some of those other countries you meant on a per capita basis. 
uh, particularly in our urban centers. And so, you know, that context is super important because it turns out, for example, in Chicago last year of the nearly 500 uh, murders, uh, there were three police involved killings. So, I mean, police, uh, there there can be an issue with police and we can discuss that, but we can't uh, suggest that that is the the central issue with respect to violence in big urban centers in America's cities uh, and the streets of America's cities, because it's just not the, it's just not the case. I think, I think it's a fair point when you say that, look, in the U S police forces and general public have wider access to firearms than they do in other countries. But if you go down this research road a little bit further, you'll find that the police forces in the U.S. are not utopia. They're not in Europe. Well, no, 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 there's no such thing as utopia. Yeah. The use of force, for instance, upon black people vis-a-vis white people in the U.S. is something like three or four to one. So the point that I'm making and, is... And, and, and wait, 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 wait. I can't let you cherry pick statistics like that. In, in the U.S., 13% of the population, the black population, 53% of the murders. So if we're going to have a discussion, it has to be a holistic one with all of the disproportional statistics on the table. So 50 percent ballpark of all the murders. Yes, that's right. But the point is that the criminal justice system, let's face it, does go after black men more than it goes after almost any other constituency. So what you're saying is that we're talking about murders. I mean, what, what should they do? But the criminal justice system shouldn't go after murderers. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that the people that it chooses to prosecute. That in itself is a function of ethnicity and race. We're talking about violent crime. I mean, you may, you know, we can have this discussion about, you know, cocaine versus crack possession historically and and other such things. But when it comes to violent crime, nobody's getting a pass on violent crime purposely because of their skin color. There's no data to back that up. If you have a citation, please present it. But that's false. I don't have citations with me right now, but I'm quite that the criminal justice system in the U.S. in part targets people on the basis of their ethnicity. If you commit a crime, whatever the crime is in the United States, whether it's murder or a parking felony, you are more likely to be prosecuted with more vigor if you are a black male than almost any other constituent. Yeah, I mean, that is that is a statement that is without basis. I just have to tell you, I mean, I'll just use an example here. This is anecdotal, but it speaks to the point, uh, and particularly in other cities. I, I don't need to just stick to Chicago, but Chicago, we have a black Cook County state's attorney. We have a black mayor. We have a black Cook County executive. So, I, I mean, they're racist in Chicago. Fifty percent of the police department officers are either black or Latino. So they're racist, too. They're looking to target black and Latinos uh, and protect whites for committing violent crimes. In point of fact, in Chicago, again, just sticking here anecdotally, fewer than 20 percent of the murder cases are cleared. So this is part of the problem is you're not clearing uh, you're clearing a fraction of the murder cases, regardless of who's committing them. But we know it's disproportionately in my, minority majority neighborhoods where we have allowed them to turn into shooting galleries at the expense of the law-abiding minorities in those neighborhoods, which, of course, is the overwhelming majority. So, And San Francisco, uh, Philadelphia, they all have state's attorneys that are, a cult- that are woke leftists, that are in the non-prosecution culture club. Uh, I mean, the, the idea that if you are a white person committing a, and you commit a violent crime— you are not receiving the same vigorous prosecution, pursuit and prosecution as a black person. There may be one off incidents like that, but um, that is not a systemic issue. There's no basis in a study to 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 uh, claim that that is any sort of systemic issue. So one in three people right now 
in the prison system in the U.S. is black. And what you're effectively saying is that they are there because of what they did as opposed to how they were treated by the criminal justice system. Overwhelmingly, yes. Especially when it comes to violent crime, which is what we're really discussing. We, we can talk about drug decriminalization another time. I'm specifically talking about violent crime. People in prison for committing violent crimes are there because they committed violent crimes, generally speaking. And I understand the number of people have been exonerated through DNA testing and through the Innocence Project and all that. And I'm an opponent of capital punishment. So I'm not saying the criminal justice system is perfect because there's no such thing as perfect on this mortal coil. But to suggest that white people are, are not in prison who committed violent crimes because they're white and black people are because they're black is, is absurd. Okay, how then do I make sense of the eight-minute strangulation which was videoed by a white police cop on a black individual unarmed you don't make sense of it the white police cop wasn't charged for quite a while despite the fact that there's a video Saqib let's hold it right there and when we come back I want to pick up on this issue of the time it took to charge the Minneapolis uh, police officers uh, particularly Derek Chauvin with murder more with Saqib Qureshi when we return The podcast of the show at danprofshow.com. We're back with Saqib Qureshi. And before the break, Saqib, you mentioned the length of time it took to charge former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin with the murder of George Floyd. Uh, as an indication maybe that racism was afoot within the Hennepin County State's Attorney's Office. And, I mean, it, it took it took 72 hours to charge him uh, with, with third-degree uh, murder and then um, third, and then upgrade it to second-degree murder and then rope in the other three cops with uh, felony charges as well. The point is there's a process of gathering information before you make charges that you know you can stick. So, I mean, 72 hours, he should have been arrested right away. I agree with that. But in terms of uh, in terms of cobbling together the charges, and by the way, this is a one-off case. There's like 99% agreement that what Derek Chauvin did was illegal and improper, and he should be prosecuted for killing George Floyd, and he is being prosecuted for killing George Floyd, and the other uh, officers are being prosecuted for their role in that alleged murder as well. So, so again, I, I don't know where, like, somebody has the moral authority on the George Floyd case because there's almost unanimity on it. I think the fact that it took 72 hours to charge somebody for murder when a video is widely circulated speaks volumes. The eight-minute video that somebody shot is one piece of evidence, and you have state's attorneys that have a process that go through to put together a case that they believe will pass the reasonable doubt standard if and when it goes to trial. I mean, I don't think that's that's indicative of any sort of racism or, you know, trying to figure a way out of not charging Derek Chauvin for the murder. I think it's quite the opposite. I mean, you know, measure twice and cut once. I mean, at the heart of this conversation really is the issue about how embedded is racism in not only the U.S., social infrastructure, but the actual state apparatus. And I think what I'm hearing is, from your perspective, it's there, but it's not really that much. And I think what I'm inclined to believe is that it's a lot more than you would like to think, and particularly in light of the ascendancy of the neo-right, neo-Nazis, the white supremacist movement in the last three, four years. Ascendancy. So, So I would argue 
that to dismiss race as a factor or as a trivial factor in all of this is misleading. It is a profound factor. Well, 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 I mean, first of all, in the George Floyd case, there's all sorts of things that we don't know. We're sort of getting a handle on in terms of the relationship between Floyd and Chauvin. I mean, they, they clearly it's more likely than not that they knew each other, that they worked together. And there could be personal animus there that has nothing to do with race. I don't know. But this is an unusual case, and this is why these sorts of things are very fact-specific. But in terms of systemic racism, which is the argument that you're really advancing about America, okay, that's fine. Uh, It's systemically racist. So the uh, incubators of that systemic racism have to be the people in charge of the systems. So why don't you tell me then who's in charge of – of most of the civic institutions in America. I'm talking about K through 12 education. I'm talking about higher education. I'm talking about corporate Fortune 1000 companies. I'm talking about the arts and entertainment sectors. I'm talking about uh, one chamber of Congress. I'm talking about half the governor's mansions. Um, Tell me if it's systemic racism, that means systems, who and what perspective do those individuals hold is in charge of most of those civic institutions, including including significantly public sector institutions uh, and particularly in areas of high concentration of minority Americans like big cities? Who is it? Look, the big Brzezinski a while back wrote a book called Out of Control, something like 20 odd years ago. And in it, he makes mention quite significantly of the rewriting of the American identity. And what he meant by that is that America has been very clear that it is a white country. That is going to change with the explosion of minorities, particularly um, Spanish people on the Spanish speaking people in the West and also in Florida and what have you, but also other communities. And I think that's what you have here now. You have here a transition period or a transition moment where America is having to figure out what its self-identity is. And you've got one school of thought, which is, look, we are multi-ethnic and America is all of ours. And another school of thought, which is, no, we are, America is still a white country for white people with a white narrative in which slaveholders are kind of forgiven in the past. So in answer to your question more, more specifically, the, the institutions that run the U.S., are overwhelmingly dominated by white people. And, and, what's, and, what is their, and what is their ideological disposition? The race doesn't have to have an ideological disposition. I agree. I agree. I agree. That's, you're, missing, you're missing my point. My point is to say the ideology, the philosophical perspective, is more important than the skin color. And what I'm saying is all those institutions I rattled off are run by identitarian leftists propagating the same arguments that you're propagating. Um, because this is about, you know, their their guilt and their white man's burden, which is a leftist philosophy. It is not a conservative philosophy. I also, by the way, reject the the, the binary, the fake binary that you presented, that some people believe this is a multi-ethnic country. And there's a significant percentage of people think this is a white country and slave slavery wasn't that bad. And they're just to be forgiven. And we erase that part of history. Wrong. There are conservatives and free marketeers and free thinkers like me and millions of other Americans who are white who say, of course, it's a multi-ethnic country. Of course, slavery was an abomination. Of course, Jim. 
Jim Crow was an abomination. These are absolute failings of America. But racism is not hardwired into our DNA, a la the 1619 Project and the other race hustlers. And we can go back to our founding documents and continue to try to form a more perfect union, to borrow a Lincolnism, and uh, abide the principles that were enshrined in the Declaration and in the Constitution in a way that we didn't during slavery, in a way that we didn't during the internment of Japanese, in a way that we didn't during Jim Crow. So I'm not going to I'm not going to accept that binary. OK, so let me uh, let me point out that there is a consensus emerging amongst social psychologists, anthropologists, epistemologists as well, for that matter, around this notion of race. So your argument is that there's a significant bulk of the United States, the right side, uh, the right wing, which is not racist. My pushback is as follows. It is more than likely that everybody is racist. And, and by that, I do mean every single body is racist. Now, the challenge around racism is not to go down the route of you are racist, I am not racist, or you know, all of this finger pointing. The challenge is really to recognize that we are all to some extent guilty of seeing and assigning meaning or narratives to people of other ethnic and even perhaps religious identities. And then to say, right, this is an inherent bias. This is an inherent human failing possibly. And we need to be cognizant of it as opposed to just pretending that we don't suffer from it. Okay. We're out of time. So, Look, I, 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 we can agree on that. And we can say that get rid, get past identity because we're all we're all fallen men and women. Get past identity and get to behavior, and that's what we should be discussing. So if that's where you're going, then then we've got an agreement, and I think we should end on agreement. So we we're happy. Um, and 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 I and I'll you know what I want to have you back because this is a great discussion, and we don't get enough discussions on this show where people are are willing to push back on me. So I appreciate it, and I wish we got more time for police unions, but we'll we'll have you back. Saqib Qureshi, he's CEO of Building Capital, Toronto real estate firm. He's also the author of The Broken Contract, Making Our Democracies Efficient, Representative, and Accountable. Mr. Qureshi, thanks for joining us. I do appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Take care. Listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show and, uh, of course, uh, the WHO and the issue of uh, continuing to enjoy U.S. taxpayer support seems to me that before you even have a conversation about uh, the World Health Organization's flacking for Chinese communists, the uh, prefatory issue is their competence. As after her pronouncement that uh, asymptomatic, the asymptomatically infected COVID-19 patients is uh, uh, not a transmitter, characterizing transmission from the asymptomatic as very rare, Dr. Maria Van Kerkhove, the WHO's emerging diseases point person, uh, clearly not uh, having cleared that statement through the leftist political filters. And uh, now she'll probably never be able to uh, post in the New York Times opinion pages. 
she uh, clarified her position by completely walking it back in, in that I use the phrase very rare. I think that's a misunderstanding to state that asymptomatic transmission globally is very rare. What I was referring to as a subset of studies. That's a misunderstanding to use it. Well, you're the one who said very rare. So the misunderstanding appears to be yours. But okay, Uh, Dr. Mark Siegel was on with Tucker Carlson last night. He's a medical professor at Langone Medical School, NYU. He had this to say about the WHO, reminding us of what their declarations have been over the last six months, not just the last 24 hours. I've been very hard on the WHO. And I've pointed out that they called it a regional conflict in January, that in February they were encouraging international travel at a time when it was spreading around the world, COVID-19. And in early March, they still weren't calling it a pandemic. I felt kind of bad, Tucker. So last night, yesterday, when I heard that Maria Van Kerkhoff, who's their head of emergency emerging diseases, Dr. Kirkhoff trained at the London School of Tropical Medicine. She's a top epidemiologist. And I thought, I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt. She's saying asymptomatic spread is very rare. And I thought, finally, a shining star coming out of the WHO I can hang my hat on. Well, guess what? Today, she walks the whole thing back. And she says, hey, I wasn't talking about pre-symptomatic spread, meaning people who didn't yet get sick. Well, CDC says right before you have symptoms is one of the biggest times of spreading. And then she said, and there's 16 percent of cases don't have symptoms at all. And we don't know how many of them are spreading. Wow. Walks the whole thing back. And now I'm left thinking, how can we possibly trust the WHO at all? Uh huh. Uh, and are we in a place now where top epidemiologist is an oxymoron? For more on this, we're pleased to be joined again by Carol Markowitz. She's a columnist for The New York Post, contributor to Spectator USA and Washington Examiner Magazine. Carol, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, how, how about uh, the uh, state of affairs among the experts in the political medical sphere when it comes to uh, yeah. Our our understanding of COVID-19, uh, the more they uh, speak, the less we seem to understand. That's absolutely right. I mean, nobody talks about the fact that the WHO still doesn't think masks are necessary. So um, it, it's unbelievable that we have these completely different set of guidelines uh, from, for all different places. And um, the idea that we're following the science has proven again and again to just not be the case. And we had uh, Dr. John Lee, a a, a pathologist from the UK on yesterday, and he's basically what you see, too, he argued, is this dynamic and the moral hazard behind this dynamic is the uh, experts make one prediction or present one model and they say, hey, I'm just an advisor to the political decision makers. And and the political decision makers say, I'm just relying on the scientists. So they're each providing cover for the other. So no one's responsible when things turn out to be wildly inaccurate. That's right. Absolutely right. And, you know, you, you mentioned this in the beginning of the segment, but, um, you know, a lot of these people were telling us that everything was okay in February and telling us to travel and to go out into big events and to not worry about it. And it's very, very hard to go from that giant error that they made to trusting them today. Um, and I, I think that's a real problem, especially when we keep pretending that there's science involved here where it, it often it looks like there's just not. Uh, when we come back with Carol Markowitz, uh, I want to talk about uh, her piece in the New York Post about the price that kids are paying for coronavirus lockdowns. Remember, 
politicians are wont to promise that everything they're doing is in the interest not just of saving lives, but also it's for the children. Well, how are the children faring with the decisions that those same politicians have made over the last uh, three months or so? More with Carol Markowitz, columnist for the New York Post, contributor Spectator USA and Washington Examiner magazine right after this. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show we're speaking with carol markowitz she's a columnist for the new york post contributor spectator usa and washington examiner magazine and and carol you wrote a good piece in uh new york post about uh, the, the impact on kids that is being felt because of the lockdowns specifically particularly in the context of trade-offs where we know that um, the incidence of infection and significant illness from infection among children right. among really people under the age of 25 is negligible. Yeah, it's been a really bad time for kids. And I think that it's gone completely ignored by most elected officials. They were pulled out of school and given this distance learning model, which by all accounts has failed in every state on every level. My kids actually have a very good distance learning model, and it's still awful. We went from screen time is bad to it's okay to give your kids screen time all day, every day. We've done stuff like the CDC over two weeks ago at this point has said that coronavirus is very difficult to get from surfaces, and yet playgrounds remain closed. We've learned from study after study that chlorinated water kills coronavirus, yet pools remain closed. So we've reached this point where everything is an upside-down land, and it's very hard to recover from that because people are afraid. People don't trust anybody anymore, and we have the situation where people are afraid of what's going to happen with their kids. But their kids are being far more damaged by being kept inside and away from their friends and away from their lives. It's very hard to reverse at this point. Right. And and then you see the protesting that's gone on over the last 10 days uh, in the wake of the George Floyd police killing and the arguments being made by public health experts. You, you noted one in your piece uh, saying, well, you know, there are trade-offs. Oh, now there are right. trade-offs and there are trade-offs. And if, right. the, if the cause okay. is righteous enough, then social yes. distancing guidelines and masks are out the window. Well, that's exactly it. The whole trade-off conversation is, as I said, brand new. About a few weeks ago, my friend and fellow writer, Bethany Mandel, said that she wants to take her kids to zoos and parks, and she feels like they're really being stunted during this time. And her name trended on Twitter with Grandma Killer, because how dare she want her kids to live a normal life? And yet here we are talking about, well, some things are worth going outside for. A lot of the parents I spoke to for my piece have kids with special needs. And those kids have been completely ignored during this process. In New York, Governor Cuomo only a few days ago allowed one-on-one instruction for special needs kids. And these kids are not getting occupational therapy. They're not getting speech therapy. They're not getting physical therapy. And all of that is important, too. Racial justice is important, but there's a lot of other things that are also important. And and the shame mobsters, too. They were out uh, in response to... Uh 
a video of a, a party, a pool party at Lake of the Ozarks that circulated mm-hmm. online a couple of weeks back. But they're echoing the sentiment of sort of the left wing epidemiologist saying that the protesting of the police and protesting on behalf of justice for George Floyd, that's OK. That's legitimate. Right. And the other thing we find out is Mark Siegel made this point on Tucker Carlson last night, is that a lot of the testing centers that process the tests that are being mm-hmm. uh, still administered, they were shut down because of the civil unrest. So we don't actually right. know. And I bet the media will have very little interest in tracking whether any of these uh, significant protests in size uh, throughout the nation ended up producing a, a number of new covid infections. Mm-hmm. There's a, a guy in Florida that would dress up as a grim reaper and walk around the Florida yes. beaches implying that you were killing yourself, you were killing others by being outside, which is nonsense. And yet he posted a picture of a large protest crowd and was very happy about that crowd and said, you know, how amazing that was. So it's, again, the science is completely secondary if it even exists at this point. And it's really just whatever feels right is what you should be doing. But yesterday in Brooklyn, there were a lot of protests that were kid-friendly. And so it's funny because a lot of these kids haven't seen their friends since, like, March, but going to a protest is okay. And, you know, maybe that's the only way we can get together anymore and see kids, let, let kids see their friends. Yeah, I mean, that is the, is the idea, the, the joke circulating, right, is that the, the protest cured COVID-19 because nobody's talking right. about that and not, none of the protocols are in place anymore. But yet you still mm-hmm. have your city, the city I live in, Chicago, California, significant lockdown mode. You detailed some of the things yeah. and you were just talking about some of the things that have been canceled for kids. And there just isn't any basis for it. But it persists None. because it's what politically popular, because enough residual fear still exists within those communities, those cities. Right. And again, you know, it's funny because I also think that we are hearing so much um, from the media, just this idea that if you if you want to move forward with our lives, if you want things to reopen, that you're some kind of COVID truther. Well, I like to say that in mid-February, my household was already stacking up on things like toilet paper and paper towels and the household goods. And I stopped sending my kids to school before the government told me that I should. So it's not that I am some truther. I absolutely believed in the risk of COVID-19. I absolutely believed in flattening the curve and letting our hospitals get ahead of it. But all of that happened. And so at no point believed that we should be shut in for the rest of our lives so that nobody dies from anything. I think that that's really the distinction that people are unable to make. Like, it's not that I didn't take COVID-19 seriously. I took it very seriously. But I at no point believed that taking it seriously meant never leaving the house again. And I think that if politicians had, pretend, you know, let us know that that's what they had in mind for flattening the curve, none of us would have done it. So, you know, I, I think a lot of people feel cheated. I'd li- a lot of people feel like they were lied to. Um, and these are not, again, these are not truthers. I spoke to a lot of very liberal parents who feel absolutely lied to by their elected officials. Well, that's encouraging uh, if, if there's some eyes opening, uh, um, if they can, you know, and put their masks down long enough to open their eyes. I, I mean, be, because it, what it seems to me is you just have a lot of people that uh, are listening to politicians say, you know, these are the trade-offs that exist that you like. And here are the trade-offs that don't exist because we don't like those trade-offs. So we just pretend they don't exist and we, we just focus on the ones that we say do exist, even though, of course, all of those trade-offs exist. The idea right. that you can stay in your home forever and you're not going to stop. You're not going to ultimately change the, the number of cases. 
generally speaking. But but number two is, of course, there are trade-offs for staying in your home indefinitely and all the health costs associated with that, with pe- which people have been talking about from the beginning. All It's always been a lives versus lives conversation, and that's yeah. um, demagoguery from politicians who suggest otherwise. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, things like dentists were not uh, essential in New York. It's absurd. So, yeah, there have been trade-offs since the start. People not getting their cancer screening, people not going to the doctor, kids not getting vaccines, all of it. And to pretend that that's a new thing or that that's just something that we were always allowed to have is, you know, is kind of wild to me. She is Carol Markowitz, columnist for New York Post, contributor to Spectator USA and Washington Examiner Magazine. Carol, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. The more you'll know, this is The Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to The Dan Prof Show. Uh, systems. Systems enforcing a compulsory unification of opinion, or attempting one at least. And uh, there's not public sector systems. The civic institutions. Who controls them? I just beat this drum all the time because it's the important drum to beat. It must be heard. What am I talking about? And the uh, world of entertainment, Cops, the uh, popular reality police show, a poll set to begin its 33rd season uh, on the Paramount Network, but has been wiped from the network schedule, not slated to return. Uh-huh. Yeah, I wonder why. Yeah, uh, we don't have any current or future plans for it to return. Right. Uh, I'm just waiting for uh, Lori Lightfoot to petition Amazon and petition Bezos to pull Hill Street Blues from Amazon Prime. Or for de Blasio to petition that NYPD Blue be pulled from the streaming services. That uh, training day. You know, Ethan Hawke, Denzel Washington, that be pulled from the streaming services. Maybe uh, Eric Garcetti will petition Bezos and uh, the Netflix crew on that score. You think I'm kidding? Season two of Sony Picture TV's L.A. Finest was set to premiere on Spectrum this week, but now will be released sometime later this year, according to Deadline, maybe. This is sort of a bad boy spinoff, but uh, with chicks. Gabriel Union and Jessica Alba, I guess, in the Will Smith and Martin Lawrence roles. Um, it's probably better to be pulled anyway, just in terms of quality. But anyway, um, yeah, so Cops, L.A.'s Finest, Come for the Other Cop Shows, eliminate that from our history. Anything that uh, profiles cops in, in a uh, positive light or profiles perhaps certain profiles of cops in a negative light a la Training Day. Hmm. Oh, and it's not just cop shows. HBO Max pulled the epic, one of the great films in history, Gone with the Wind, a film that produced the first black actor to win an Oscar. Of course, that's Hattie McDaniel. Um, pulled. Oh. Um, there's some backlash to it, but of course it's backlash by people who believe in free thinking and 
and living in a free society uh, and wanting and not wanting to uh, whitewash the past, but to learn from it. And uh, how loony is this getting? Looney Tunes, literally. Elmer Fudd and Yosemite Sam are being disarmed. Elmer Fudd, uh, he's still hunting wabbits just without a firearm in the new series Looney Tunes cartoons on the recently launched streaming platform HBO Max. They pull Gone with the Wind and they disarm Yosemite Sam and Elmer Fudd. Good news is uh, Wiley Coyote still has access to his uh, Acme company explosives, at least for now. From the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danprofshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Prof and at Dan Prof Show. We're pleased to be rejoined. Um, she was with us a couple of weeks ago by Sue Ellen Browder, who's a former writer for Cosmo, author of Subverted, How I Helped the Sexual Revolution Hijack the Women's Movement, and most recently... Uh, the author of Sex and the Catholic Feminist, New Choices for a New Generation. Uh, she has an amazing conversion story from working at Cosmo under the uh, tutelage of Helen Gurley Brown and uh, then having a conversion uh, to Catholicism and recognizing that the uh, line of propaganda, and it was propaganda, and she detailed it for us, that the, the, the fiction that was presented as fact uh, at Cosmo for the time that she was there, and I'm sure that extended well beyond her time there, in order to advance this uh, leftist uh, sexual revolution free love agenda to uh, American suburbia. Uh, and that now she's got a, a fascinating piece that she's written about uh, Harry Blackman, some research that she did into the Blackman papers. After this, maybe she can do some research into the Biden papers. Sue Ellen Browder, thanks so much for joining us again. Appreciate it. It's a delight to be here. Thank you. So you um, uh, went to the Library of Congress and you uh, dug up Harry Blackman's papers. Uh, Harry Blackman, of course, the uh, Supreme Court justice who authored the Roe v. Wade opinion. And uh, you have now you're now sort of putting the question and trying to get an answer to it. Well, who actually who actually authored that opinion? It was Harry Blackman, but it was Harry Blackman influenced by others. That exactly. Well, that's when I was writing um, Subverted, I found out. Well, I had been following uh, Lawrence Later, who was a co founder of NARAL, and he wrote a book called Abortion. And he, he was very influential in getting the abortion laws overturned in this country. In fact, his book was the foundation that Roe v. Wade was based on. And, and I was trying to figure out how did that book, which was full of error, full of propaganda, how did that book get into that opinion? Because it was quoted seven times, and then uh, the NARAL attorney, uh, Cyril Chestnut Means, who was, was, was one of Larry Later's uh, co 
conspirators, if you will, uh, was quoted another seven times. So you had Nayral's people vote um, in that um, opinion quoted 14 times. How did that happen? And that, well, that's why I went to the, uh, to the uh, Library of Congress to try to find out. And I found out some very interesting things. For example, Harry Blackman was a good old uh, Republican uh, a father with three kids. He knew nothing about abortion, and in fact, he had to go out and research it. I didn't realize that uh, um, Supreme Court justices went out and did their own research. I thought they listened to the arguments and decided, but he went out and did his own research on abortion in, at the Mayo Clinic. And while he was out there, um, his $15,000 a year, 28-year-old law clerk helped him craft that opinion. And they based that, and that law clerk appears to have based, or he did base that opinion on this book that is full, chock full of errors. And and the, uh, the, law, the, the law clerk, um, uh, it was a, a very good writer. And where Black, yes. where Blackman wasn't, he was a former managing editor of the Harvard Law Review, as uh, That's mo- right. most of That's these clerks right. are Ivy League uh, trained uh, lawyers. And uh, and 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 so the uh, penumbras and emanations. This is the um, the rhetorical uh, work of the law clerk, or is this something that uh, oh, no, came, that to, I, came to Harry Blackman? I, I'm I'm not sure. That's I think is is another that was another Supreme Court justice who, who came up with that word. I think. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and so so uh, but but because as you say, Harry Blackman was a good Republican. This is what's uh, what's lost in history too, uh, among many. Right, a Nixon nominee approved ninety four to nothing, ninety four to nothing in the Senate, uh, and 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 then he takes on. Uh, the sexual revolution from the perspective of the revolutionary. So how does a, a good uh, a good boy, a United Methodist Church congregant, come to uh, sign his name to this opinion, regardless of who did the draft? That's right. Well, that was that was that was the question. Well, he Harry Blackman had a lot of trouble with it, but he did he did sign off on it because he was convinced that this was um, women wanted to be emancipated. And that was one of Larry Later's arguments, that uh, women had always wanted abortion to be free. Well, this was totally fabricate, fabricated. Uh, women's, uh, women had fought against abortion. Uh, the, the suffragists were against abortion. Um, Alice Paul, who spearheaded the campaign that led to the passage of the 19th Amendment that gave women the right to vote, called abortion the ultimate in the exploitation of women. Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B. Anthony, even Margaret Sanger. Now, that's a surprising thing because Margaret Sanger is the founder of Planned Parenthood. Even she called abortion murder. And it wasn't until after she died that um, Planned Parenthood be- and was taken over by uh, a man, um, Guttmacher, yeah, uh, yeah, a doctor. Yeah. yeah, and that's when uh, um, Planned Parenthood became an abortion provider. Uh, Margaret Sanger was not against, was against abortion, but she was a eugenicist. Yes, she was. I'm not. I'm not defending. Margaret no, Sanger. no. I know you're not. I know you're not. But it, but it is. No, it's an interesting point that you make because here's the history that all these p hats running around today don't know. 
Um, in addition to that, uh, Harry Blackman, the same P hats and others running around uh, separation of church and state. I don't want to hear about your religiosity and how it influences your public policy choices or uh, certainly a Supreme Court uh, a, a, a justice or a, a federal uh, nominee to the bench like uh, Amy Coney Barrett. Oh, it sounds, it sounds like your Catholicism lives loudly within you, uh, declared Di-Fi, right? right. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Harry Blackman's faith lived loudly in him, too, that I mentioned. And you yeah. point out that he was influenced, uh, it seems, by a very liberal Protestant minister, Named Harry Emerson Fosdick, who uh, yeah. whose writings influenced uh, Blackman's opinion in Roe v. Wade. So it was that sort of leftist uh, uh, leftist view of Christianity that uh, won the day with Harry Blackman and his view on Roe v. Wade. That's exactly right. Harry Emerson Fosdick, who a lot of people don't remember, was a key figure in the split in Protestantism in the 1920s between the liberals and the conservatives. Okay, he was there, and he was he was one of the liberals, and he denied Jesus's virgin birth. He denied it. Denied the He denied Jesus bodily resurrection. He denied the second coming, and he said, they call me a heretic. Well, I'm a heretic if orthodoxy is the standard. He says. Mm-hmm. So he was, he was, a, he was um, very influential. Um, Blackman, Harry Blackman, who wrote Roe v. Wade, was very impressed by Harry Fostick and even spent an, an evening, a Christmas Eve with him. And Fostick had said so so we're fighting so much on why why how did um Harry Blackman decide that a baby in the womb is not a person well Harry Fostick had had written books about what that saying that you become a real person how do you become he said you don't you don't you're not born a real person you become a real person through action the self-made man of action was the one who was a real person. So since the baby in the womb is not a self-made man of action, he's not a person. Yeah. That's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And this is how you can get uh, bioethicists like, uh, uh, like uh, Peter Singer uh, arguing that, uh, uh, you know, essentially life doesn't begin until you're able to work outside the home, which is ab- about his position. Remar- well, yeah, yeah. There you go. Uh, it's yeah. remarkable. I love the close to your piece. Um, uh, Roe is merely a, a paper document constructed of words that were written and rewritten by uninformed men and in the light of a new day can be written again. Well, let's hope that's true. A uh, great piece. Uh, she is Sue Ellen Browder, former writer for Cosmo magazine, author of Subverted, How I Helped the Sexual Revolution, Hijack the Women's Movement, and more recently, Sex and the Catholic Feminist, New Choices for a New Generation. Sue Ellen uh, uh, Browder, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. It was fantastic. Thank you. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Let's stay on the faith front. Uh, we move from our discussion with Sue Ellen Browder, very interesting discussion, her research into the Harry Blackman papers about uh, the real um, origination of his uh, majority opinion in the Roe v. Wade case. Very interesting stuff. Uh, we're going to be joined by um, Ralph Reed momentarily. I wanted to uh, just uh, lead in with uh, something Attorney General Barr said in his uh, two-part interview with our friend Brett Baer uh, on Fox News. Attorney General Barr's view on uh, Donald Trump and his relationship with the president. In the middle of these crises, it's two in a row now, and you've been meeting with him a lot. It's uh, good because I think the president's a very decisive person, and he's interested in hearing all the views. There's a lot of robust discussion, uh, and he makes a decision, and um, I think he's been a good leader. Yeah, it's important because uh, Barr, you can Barr is sort of unfazed, as you might expect, from the criticism that he's the president. He's acting as the president's attorney when he's the people's attorney as the attorney general. Um, but it's his assessment about uh, Trump's leadership. And uh, even when there's disagreements, you hear him suggest there's opportunity for robust discussion. And ultimately, he's decisive. He's a good leader. That's sort of the same uh, argument or conclusion that Ralph Reed joins uh, 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 Ralph Reed offers in his uh, new book, For God and Country, The Christian Case for Trump. Um, We're not here to serve Trump or any political leader. We're here to uh, uh, live our faith for those of us who are faithful. Uh, We're here to glorify God in our lives. And uh, but Trump is a good leader and deserving of support because of the respect he provides for those living their faith. That's a, apparently too subtle of an argument for the press to understand, whether it's Attorney General Barr making it in his space or Ralph Reed making it in his. But it's an argument that needs to be advanced nonetheless, as we're just five months from Election Day. Ralph Reed, chairman and CEO of Century Strategies, founding executive director of the Christian Coalition. He founded and serves as the chairman of the Faith and Freedom Coalition. And the book I referenced, For God and Country, The Christian Case for Trump. Ralph Reed, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, Dan. Good to be with you. Uh, yeah. And um, so let's just start there, because I, I I was thinking about your book when I heard A.G. Bart, you know, sort of distinct uh, uh, distinguishing between his professional responsibilities and his view of Trump. Those are two separate things that intersect. And it's sort of the same approach that you take in your book, which is uh, uh, my faith and uh, how I'm trying to live my life and where my view of the president intersects with that. Yeah, I had, as I, as I write about in Forgotten Country, I had a little bit of, of an advantage over, uh, you know, most Christian voters and that, you know, I had gotten to know Trump on a personal level over a period of years. It was uh, either providential or coincidental. Uh, but uh, I said something nice about him in an interview, and uh, he literally cold called me. I'd never met him before in my life, didn't know him from Adam, uh, did not have a high opinion of him. Mm-hmm. And I and I told him that. Um, but as I got to know him, uh, you know, I found that he was genuinely pro-life, that he had come to a genuine change of heart on that. And I described why in the book. And uh, we talked about a lot of issues. I found him to be very smart very engaging, very hands-on, somebody who seemed to know literally everyone. Um, and once I became convinced of where his heart was, 
I believe that he could be a real asset uh, to the cause for life and religious freedom and traditional values in our society. Um, I'm a, I'm a big believer in making converts, and this was a big convert to our cause. And the, and the other thing that I would add, Dan, is that in addition to that, even more so, um, and I describe a meeting that he had with over a thousand faith leaders in New York City in June of 2016, a meeting, the proceedings of which and the content of which I don't believe have ever been made public outside of this book, uh, where he said, I believe churches should have more influence, not less in our society. And if I become president, I want to help you get your voice back. Now, that's a pretty big deal. If you believe the church uh, can be a sublime influence on our society and has too often been marginalized or silenced. Well, and and uh, so, so that that's why I made the decision that I felt like I could not only support him, but strongly support him. And, and we've seen what you're describing play out in real time recently, and, and perhaps because of the, the lockdown policies, this is more prescient than ever, and it needs to not be lost, where you had the Department of Justice, the Trump administration's Department of Justice, interceding on behalf of houses of worship who were being yep. uh, discriminated against by state governments uh, in Mississippi and Virginia and elsewhere, and say, wait a second, yep. you can't treat churches differently than you're treating other establishments. And uh, state and local governments had to reverse policies consistent with uh, constitutional protections. That's because you had Attorney General Barr, a Trump nominee and Senate confirmee, uh, in, that, uh, in that seat as Attorney General. Uh, that's right. And the Justice Department under this president has gone into federal court uh, multiple times and also sent letters to governors saying that their their shelter at home and their social distancing regulations were being applied in a way that was discriminatory to churches and by so targeting violated the First Amendment. So you're right, it makes a big difference. And it was about two weeks ago that the president walked into the White House briefing room and said, it's time for America's churches to be allowed to reopen. We've had liquor stores and abortion clinics and massage parlors open in some states for months during this pandemic. But churches have been ordered closed, and in some cases, pastors and Christians have been fined or issued citations for committing the unpardonable sin of trying to attend a worship service, which, by the way, abided by the CDC and social distancing guidelines. And I had the opportunity to talk to the president later that day. And uh, he was commenting on how far we've come as a community. That, you know, three and a half years ago, nobody would have thought that Donald Trump would have necessarily been the one calling on churches to reopen as president. Many were very skeptical of him. Many Christians, frankly, had to be dragged kicking and screaming to vote for him because they had deep and abiding reservations about him. But he has proven, Dan, to be everything he promised he would be. And that's why I have a 30-page appendix in the book that details all of these accomplishments and achievements on religious freedom, on life, on moving the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. It's really one of the most extraordinary stories, not only in my career, 
but in the history of American politics and in the modern history of the church. Well, I want to I want to come back right there and pick that up because I, I want to understand from your perspective as somebody who's uh, both a uh, evangelical leader as well as a political animal. Um, the arguments from your perspective that uh, never Trump Christians, uh, people of, of goodwill and good faith, but uh, but never Trumpers nonetheless, are making in opposition to the president's reelection. More with Ralph Reed, chairman and CEO of Century Strategies, author of the new book, Forgotten Country, The Christian Case for Trump. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're talking to Ralph Reed, chairman and CEO of Century Strategies, founding ED of the Christian Coalition, who founded and serves as chairman of the Faith and Freedom Coalition. His new book, Forgotten Country, The Christian Case for Trump. And before the break, you were talking about the appendix in your book that details all of the accomplishments of this administration that should be particularly um, attractive to people of faith in this country in an ecumenical sense. But yet we have, uh, for example, um, one of the more prominent never Trump Christians, David French, who uh, can look at those accomplishments and still say that uh, President Trump is somebody that he can't support. And and there are others like him uh, that have prominence. And of course, their prominence has been amplified by a leftist media that is looking for people that do not share their values to undermine Trump from the other side of the political spectrum. What is it that uh, the David Frenches of the world are missing? How do you explain that dynamic? Well, I don't know that I would say they're missing anything. I understand their objections, but the objections of the never Trumpers is generally one of style and stylistic, what they perceive to be stylistic excesses and the use of rhetoric or language that they consider to be inconsistent with the gospel. I think what is misunderstood here is the argument reductio ad absurdum, that as a Christian, as a believer, I should only support candidates for public office who reflect the dignity and the grace of the gospel. I don't believe that that's what Scripture teaches. I believe that we should, as people of faith, make it clear what our faith teaches and what our clear preference is in civil discourse. But let me tell you something. I've been doing this for a long time. This is my 11th presidential campaign. So this is not my first rodeo. And I've met a lot of candidates. Let's just start with the first one at the beginning of the so-called religious right, Jimmy Carter. Hmm. He spoke with grace. He was a Sunday school teacher. He was a born-again Christian. But you know what? He was for abortion on demand. And he was weak in projecting U.S. power, including allowing hostages to be taken in Iran and not being able to do much about it, and including allowing the Soviets to invade Afghanistan and his only real response to it was to boycott the Olympics. And, and adding the term stagflation to our economic uh, lexicon. Yeah, and an economic disaster, okay? So Ronald Reagan comes along. He's the first divorced man to ever sit in the Oval Office. He signed the most liberal abortion law in America when he was governor of California. And when they asked him if he considered himself to be born again, he said they don't use that term in my church, and he rarely, if ever, attended church service. And Christians voted against a fellow believer, Sunday school teacher, Southern Baptist, born-again Christian. Why? 
because his policies were a disaster and because he supported things that assaulted their conscience and was contrary to their moral values. And what I argue in the book, and I quote Reagan in this respect, the very famous speech that he gave to the National Association of Evangelicals in 1983. He said, we're called upon as Christians to advance the moral good and resist evil with all of our might. Now, in that context, Dan, he was talking about the Soviet Union and communism, but he could have just as easily been talking about terrorism, Iran, and the threat to Israel. And Donald Trump, whatever you think of everything that he says, and he says and tweets things that I wish he wouldn't, Mm -hmm. but he is the most pro-Israel president who has ever sat behind the Resolute desk. He recognized Jerusalem as the eternal capital of Israel. He recognized Israeli sovereignty over Judea, Samaria, and the Golan Heights. And through the force of that office and the bully pulpit of that office, he has associated the most powerful nation in the world with a defense of the Jews and the security of the state of Israel against their enemies. And that is a moral good. It's a moral good that we're called upon to advance. And Iran, the leading state sponsor of terrorism in the world, whose mullahs have vowed to wipe Israel off the map, were being given by the previous administration $100 billion, including a billion in cash, sent on a U.S. cargo plane, and they were allowed to pursue a nuclear weapons program that would have gotten them a weapon within 10 or 15 years. And I believe we're called to resist that. I think we can pray for Trump and pray that he will learn to season his speech with grace as with salt, as the Bible teaches, but we don't abdicate our responsibility as citizens to seek aid and comfort for the Church, for believers, and yes, for Jews and for Israel, because somebody isn't fully sanctified. That's just not taught in Scripture anywhere. In the Old and New Testament, Jews in the Old Testament and Christians in the New Testament Seek the aid and assistance of those in authority who will defend them, period. And as a persuasive argument, it's one you can get in more detail in his book, For God and Country, The Christian Case for Trump. He is Ralph Reed, chairman and CEO of Century Strategies, founding ED of the Christian Coalition, who founded and serves as the chairman of the Faith and Freedom Coalition as well. Ralph Reed, thanks for joining us, and best of luck with the book. We appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. My honey, my baby, don't put my love on no shelf. Don't hand me no lines and keep your hands to your... This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And since uh, Chicago has become a national story again because of the violence and now because of this uh, conference call that Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot, the triple threat, as she termed herself when she ran for office, and I've made sure to maintain that as her nickname since she was so comfortable using it as a candidate for office, her description, triple threat, because she's black, female, and gay, triple threat. The consummate identitarian politician. And look how wonderfully that's working out with uh, the uh, body count and the incidence of violent crime spiking in her first full year as mayor of Chicago. Uh, Laura Ingram took up this uh, conference call that uh, Mayor Lightfoot had with 50 aldermen of the city of Chicago. Yes, we have more than twice as many aldermen as the city of New York with uh, less than a third of the population. But uh, I digress. Uh, And uh, there was heated exchanges between Lightfoot and several of the aldermen because a week ago Sunday, 
Chicago had its most violent day in 60 years with 18 people. Uh, excuse me, 18 people just killed that day. Something like 27 killed, 92 shot just that weekend, the weekend before last. And so one exchange is getting a lot of attention, but uh, part of the analysis is missing by those, unlike me, who don't understand Chicago. Uh, first, and so I'll explain that, but first the audio. This is Lori Lightfoot uh, communicating uh, with a alderman named Ray Lopez, who represents a southwest side ward of the city. So Latino alderman, black mayor, because, you know, everything needs those identifiers these days. And um, uh, all the aldermen were explaining what was happening in their wards and what they needed from the mayor's office in terms of really law enforcement resources, ironically. And uh, this is how the exchange between Lightfoot and Alderman Lopez went. We can't expect our police, and I don't fault them at all, to be able to control this. But I know that we asked our faith base yesterday to stand at the front line between police and looters and rioters. And I am simply not comfortable telling my churches, those people, to be the intermediary in the middle of a riot that's citywide. We need something better. Because right now, we only have 370 whatever National Guards on standby. Half our neighborhoods are already obliterated. It's too late. We have to come up with a better plan because once my fear is once they're done looting and rioting and whatever's going to happen tonight, God help us. What happens when they start going after residents, going into the neighborhoods? Once they start trying to break down people's doors so they think they got something, you know, we know that people are here to antagonize and incite, and you've got them all pumped tonight. Today, they're not going to go to bed at 8 o'clock. They're going to turn their focus in the neighborhood. I've got gangbangers with AK-47s walking around right now just waiting to settle some scores. What are we going to do, and what do we tell our residents other than good faith people stand up? It's not going to be enough. Thank you, Alderman. Well, no, I want an answer. I that you commented on everybody. I want an answer. It's not something you ignore. This is a oh, question that I have. I think you're 100. I think you're 100 full of shit. Is what I think. If you think oh, we no were offense, right, well, fuck you then. Hold on. Who if are you, you to tell we me I'm ready, full of shit? And if you think if you think Everybody. we were not ready and we stood by and let the neighborhood go up, there's nothing intelligent that I can say to you. Well, maybe you should come out and see stupidest, what's going on. The stupidest thing. I have ever heard. I understand you want supreme. I understand that you think that you Mayor, you need to check your f***ing attitude. That's what you need to do. Right now, no. You need to check your attitude. So that could have gone better. Lori Lightfoot doesn't only wear Joe Pesci's suits. She also sports his vocabulary, as you heard. And uh, Alderman Lopez was ready to return rhetorical fire. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, it's the, on the basis of the violence and um, those being the people in charge that uh, the Wall Street Journal has termed Chicago murder city USA. And by the way, at least recent polling sort of pre the rioting in Chicago. Lightfoot was enjoying 75 uh, percent approval ratings. In a city that perhaps has the most draconian lockdown 
COVID-19 related lockdown, in addition to the lockdown over the last uh, week intermittently because of the violence, the 9 p.m. curfews. Uh, Most draconian in the country. You know, she's closed the lakefront in Chicago, even despite what we know about being outside and transmission of the virus outside. But anyway, Murder City, USA. And by the way, the black lives that uh, didn't matter to Lori Lightfoot and the Chicago political class and their media handmaidens. The 18 people murdered on Chicago uh, in Chicago uh, a week ago, Sunday alone. Most of the victims were young black males, but uh, several of the slain were young black women. Danielle Jones, 30-year-old black woman, standing on her front porch when she was shot in the chest by a passerby. Kishane Bolden, an 18-year-old student at Western Illinois University who was studying to become a correctional officer, reportedly shot during an argument. Ironically, she had written a paper last year about gun violence in her neighborhood. Uh, 911 call center received 65,000 calls on the Sunday before last. That's about 50,000 more than during a typical day. Police were called to work in, in into work overtime, but were stretched thin amid the uh, indiscriminate attacks on businesses, particularly in low-income minority neighborhoods. So the frustration going in both directions. But here's the thing. This is, you know, Lopez was on Laura Ingram last night, and that's all, you know, Lopez stood up to the mayor, and he's a, he's a, a true public servant. What you have in Chicago is neo-feudalism, and I don't mean in the Joel Kotkin sense of the word, the clerisy versus the yeomanry. I mean in the medieval sense of the word, feudalism in that sense of the word. You have the feudal queen and you have 50 feudal lords with 50 different fiefdoms who essentially believe the same things, propose and promote the same policies, vote the same way have the same mentality, the same philosophy, the same ideology, and are now arguing over who's behind gets covered. So, you know, don't rush to Alderman Lopez's aid the way that Laura Ingram did. Understand the larger play here where you have Democrat socialists and Democrat socialists just trying to protect their fiefdoms, not their constituents. Listen, the more you'll know, this is the Dan Prof Show. Cause they got the beat, the campus beat, the campus beat. Yeah, the campus beat. Yeah, let's, uh... End the show on uh, with a bit of optimism, and uh, imagine this. We go to the campus, the college campus, for a bit of optimism uh, for America's future, and that's because a number of students, I think, um, get the joke that uh, the media and the left, I repeat myself, are attempting to play in America. This from the Wall Street Journal's Future View uh, column. This is uh, where they interview students on college campuses from around the country on various salient issues of the day to get their perspectives. Uh, So on racism, riots, Black Lives Matter, that was the topic. 
Kyle McCotter at Biola University, computer science major. Uh, BLM doesn't have a monopoly on anti-racism. Many take issue with the violence and more radical rhetoric associated with BLM, but that doesn't mean they think black lives don't matter. Instead, they disagree about the best ways to address racism and how widespread it is. But if you listen to what many of the movement supporters say, you'd think half the country was racist. That's the central misunderstanding. Okay. Yeah. Uh, How about uh, Jose Alvarez at the Minerva Schools at the Keck Graduate Institute, also computer science? He stands with the George Floyd, not the rioters. I've been told I'm not sensitive enough that my moral compass prioritizes property over people because he opposes the rioting. I disagree. The horrendous murder of George Floyd angers me, but I also feel for the business owners who see everything they've worked for destroyed with impunity and the locals whose neighborhoods may never be the same again. I stand with them as with George Floyd. One more. Raphael Arbex Marut, Virginia Tech, computer science and math. The title of uh, his response, a false choice. As I was arguing about current events with my fraternity brothers, I realized there was no real disagreement. Everyone acknowledged that what happened to George Floyd was a gut-wrenching tragedy and that the riots were unacceptable. What many fail to understand is that the two sentiments need not be mutually exclusive. Discuss that theft and arson doesn't detract from recognizing unjust instances of police brutality, just as expressing dissatisfaction with an unfair system isn't an endorsement of violent attacks on civilized society. We are free to place emphasis on what is most important to us, but we shouldn't allow ourselves to fall victim to confirmation bias by scrolling through social media in search of clips that prove our point. Well, those three, now maybe these are a bit um, not representative and why this is my favorite Future View column to date, which is, uh, you know, they pick computer science majors, rational thinkers. We don't have those in media and politics uh, in uh, so many other sectors, the law. Uh, not at least not the same, not the same prevalence. But uh, these uh, young individuals, so these college students, computer science and math guys, uh, certainly get the joke, don't they? And it's uh, not a funny one. Good perspectives, though. Appreciate that. And I appreciate you joining us for another installment of the Dan Prof Show. Please do so again tomorrow. From the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.